Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. When I decided to do this particular subject, I never realised how moved I'd become. I cried a few times reading through the letters, and when I heard them being read by the various voice actors, I cried again. As a mother of a serving Royal Navy sailor, this really affected me, and I truly wish no one has to go through what these people went through all those years ago. And we all know that this is happening right now, in various parts of the world. If you are a long-time listener to this show, then you'll recall that I've done a few episodes featuring letters from soldiers sent home from the trenches. This show is a little bit different because these letters are being sent further. In fact, these letters are from US soldiers who joined World War I on the 17th of April, 1917. When war broke out in Europe in 1914, the United States of America adopted a policy of strict neutrality. There was little support amongst the American population for entering the war, even after hearing early reports of German atrocities such as the mindless killing of women and children. They just didn't believe it. They didn't believe that any country would allow that sort of thing to happen. It was the sinking of RMS Lusitania by a German U-boat in May 1915 that changed everything. 128 US citizens lost their lives, and suddenly fury spread throughout the country. Anyone with a German-sounding name were attacked, their shops and businesses destroyed. In response to American outrage, Germany abandoned unrestricted U-boat attacks, but resumed them again early in 1917. This, coupled with the news that Germany had proposed an alliance with Mexico to threaten American interests, finally brought America into the war on the 17th of April 1917. Although America was not ready for war, the country had to mobilise and prepare its armed forces for battle. The US Army was small in size, but conscription was soon introduced to expand it. The first US troops arrived in France in June 1917 and brought with them a much-needed morale boost for the Allied soldiers already there. Word of the Week 
for this week's Word of the Week, I give you... Booby Trap, which has been in use since the mid-19th century to refer to a fairly harmless prank or joke. But it was taken up by troops during the First World War to describe an explosive device deliberately designed as a harmless object. Calling it one of the dirty tricks of war, the English journalist Sir Philip Gibbs ominously wrote in his day-by-day war memoir from Bapoom to Passchendaele, The enemy left slow-working fuses and booby traps to blow a man to bits or blind him for life if he touches a harmless-looking stick or opens the lid of a box or stumbled over an old boot. The first US soldier I'd like to introduce you to is Bernard Levine, who was born on the 2nd of April 1897 in New York and was one of nine children of Samuel Hirsch and Hannah Rose Winnig Levine, who were both originally from Lithuania. Bernard Levine was one of twins, both in service during World War I. He enlisted the day after America's declaration of war in April 1917 and was one of 20 young men of Jewish faith who went to fight for democracy from his hometown of Leavenworth. His family received a telegram in June 1918 to say he had arrived safely in France. When he left home, he was originally in E Company, but once at Camp Donathan, Fort Still, Oklahoma, on the way to France, he secured a transfer to the 139th Infantry. His twin brother, Herman, was enlisted in the Hospital Corps at Fort Leavenworth before going to France. Bernard was lucky. He survived and returned to his family in April 1919 and went on to have two children and a business as a car mechanic. He passed away on the 19th of November 1945 in Solano County, California. Here's a couple of his letters that he sent home to his family. Dear ones, I just received three letters and my Christmas box and I sure was some happy kid. The letters were the first received over five weeks and the box is just great. I am chewing some of the gum right now. Well, sis dear, I am wondering how you got so many things in it. And the cigarette case with the cigarettes that Jerry sent is a beauty, and I can sure make use of it. Just got about 35 Leavenworth papers, and believe me, I can hardly wait now to read them. We were in Marcel, and I had a fine time. Have gotten a money order from the California folks, and it comes in mighty handy. Money is scarce here. We don't know how soon we'll be home, but think it will be some time in the spring. Certainly saw the country in our trucks, and will tell you all about it when I get home. My love to all from your loving brother and son, Bernie. Dear ones, I am over to E Company and back with the boys again for a little visit. Henry Radloff is also writing home. Sure feel happy when I'm with the Leavenworth boys. All are looking fine. Saw a dandy boxing match at the commissary. It was a good fight. I'm going to have dinner with the boys. Have been through some fine towns. Had such a good time at the Marseille and Dion. I am in Company E's orderly room and Bert Perkins just came in. So we had a good talk all about old times. We just got new trucks, so that means we will remain here for some time. But here's hoping we'll get home real soon. 
I have seen enough of this country, and I want to get back to our dear old U.S. This is all for this time. With heaps of love to all, from your loving brother and son, Bernard Levine. As you can imagine, not all letters from the battlefront were as happy as Bernard's. Here's one from Harvey, sent to his wife. Harvey was mortally wounded on only the second day of the Argonne Drive. His message was delivered to his wife. Dearest wife, Dad used to hang his overalls outside the kitchen door before he came in the house. That's what I am doing now, leaving this useless body outside while I go in the house. It will be new to me, but Mother will be there, and she will welcome me like she used to. We shall visit, and she will ask about you, and I'll be proud to tell her how happy you have made me, and what a loyal comrade you always were. Taking the bitter with the sweet, always the truest help a man ever had. Don't feel too badly over me. It had to come sometime anyway, and I'm sure I prefer dying for my country than in a long illness at home. We both believe in a hereafter, so please don't grieve. But just think of me, as always, on a visit, and you will join me later. If it were not for a belief like this, parting would be terrible. But we know. Until we meet again, dear one. Harvey. About 19 million soldiers from all armies were wounded in World War I, and caring for them was a military operation in itself. Treatment often started on the battlefield, as the men carried field dressings and painkillers, and would tend to each other before the medical staff and stretcher bearers got there. Then, the wounded would be sorted based on the severity of their wounds, with the seriously wounded being taken by ambulance to a casualty clearing station, which was tents or huts, where emergency treatment would be administered. This would include surgery, such as amputation, and there were an estimated 500,000 limb removals performed during that war alone. Afterwards, they would be sent to a military hospital far from the front to be cared for by nurses, most of whom were volunteers. Many of the men recovered from their injuries, but some weren't so lucky. If you were wounded in no man's land, then you'd be left there until it was safe to be brought back to the trenches. This meant that many soldiers died because they didn't receive treatment in time. on the street. Today we're going to be venturing to Crispin Way in BS 15 in Bristol. Saint Crispin was the patron saint of leather workers and when you consider how many bootmakers there were in the area it seems pretty apt. The other option is that the name came from Miles Crispin who died in 1107. He was also known as Miles or Milo of Wallingford. Miles was a wealthy Norman landowner, particularly associated with Wallingford Castle in Berkshire. The Doomsday Book records Miles as a major landowner, 
with holdings in Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire, Surrey, Wiltshire and, of course, the local area of Bristol. Now, this US soldier's letter is particularly interesting to me because he was in Bristol when he wrote it, sent here to recover from injuries sustained on the battlefront. Dear Mother, Lucille and all I am out now. Have been out in the city and it certainly is some place. The streets are crowded. Have seen a great many things over here about which I studied in school. Have seen King George in person. We'll be in this hospital some little time, then we'll go to another hospital, possibly London or someplace in Scotland, until I am strong again, and then I get 14 days furlough. It will be some time before I see France again. I'm getting along just fine and sure like England better than France. Guess I'll do no more fighting in France because we are expecting peace any time. I've seen a great many American sailors in the city. Sure would love to see Wallace over here. I sleep good at night here, nothing to wake us. We have nice things to eat. I was invited out to tea with another fellow from New York and they sure gave us one more feed. When we are stronger, we will go out to some fine English home and spend three or four days. At the hospital, we can go out at 2 p.m., must be in at 8 p.m. and go to bed at nine. We wear blue hospital uniforms with red tie and white collar. Some American Red Cross girls from North Carolina are here in the city and they have been to see us. We are the first American wounded to come to Bristol, England. A YMCA man brought us some writing paper and people are coming out to see us all the time. Over in France, we hardly ever saw anyone in civilian clothes. Everything looks so desolate over there. I have been traveling on boxcars. They put 40 soldiers in one boxcar when we go anywhere. We've been all over the firing line of France and Belgium and I was pretty tired when I got to the hospital. I rode from the firing line and ambulance trucks and then took a Red Cross train and the boat and now I'm here. I left Sam and Robbie all right Sunday morning, September 29th, but never saw them again after I was hurt. Have not heard for Sam yet, but will soon. Give me love to all and tell them to write. Curtis. As you can imagine, letters being the only form of communication between a soldier and their loved ones were immensely important for morale. The letters passing between soldiers and those left behind included everything, from passionate declarations of love to parental support to the simple daily news of home and the front lines. Often it was difficult for family members to let their soldiers go, but one of the best ways to keep them as close as possible was through a regular correspondence. Kate Gordon was a mother of three young soldiers fighting in Europe in World War I, and she would write regularly to her sons, offering them strong words of encouragement with her maternal sentiments. In a letter to one of her sons, she wrote, And when you do come marching home, old fellow, Bring me back the same boy I gave my country. True and clean and gentle and brave. You must do this for your father and me and Betty and Nora. And most of all, for the daughter you will give me one of these days. Dear, 
I don't know whether you have even met her yet, but never mind that. Live for her, or if God wills, die for her. But do either with courage, with honor, and clean mirth. But I know you will come back to me. I can't tell you which of the three boys Kate sent this letter to, but only the youngest Gordon boy, Jimmy, was killed during the war. The other two did, indeed, return to their mother. There was a captain in the medical corps of the 1st Division who took dying messages of hundreds of boys for loved ones at home in America. Some were dictated, whilst others were written before the final action and were found on the bodies of the slain young men lying on the battlefields. The doctor kept copies of some of the goodbye letters to mothers, wives and sweethearts. Here's just one. Dear Grace, was sent up to the front so fast that no mail has caught up with me. If I only had one little line of yours telling me you love me to hold it in my hand or keep over my heart, it would make the telling of this easier. I'm dying, Grace. We were just kids, yes, but I'm dying a man's death. Not afraid. Only wish I could see you and tell you I love you. Goodbye, sweetheart. Eugene. Eugene had just joined the division and was killed in the Argonne. His sweetheart was never found. Do you love true crime but are looking for something different? It sounds like a sitcom. It does. The kind of assholes, you should probably leave them alone. Do you like learning about cases so off the wall they can't possibly be true? Her wig is enormous, but it is lifted off her head by a monkey. Do you love history, but want to hear about what they didn't teach you in school? It's just got a almost where you hang your horns sign. <laughs> Do you like laughing awkwardly about cases that are bizarre and a little strange? They'd be able to wield so many knives with all of their little arms. (laughs) Then we have the podcast for you. Join me, Lindsay. And me, Madison, for Ye Old Crime. Where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. Listen every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. Back in the day facts. So let's start off with the 8th of October 1915 in France on the Western Front when the Battle of Luz ends. It was the biggest British attack of 1915, the first time that the British used poison gas and the first mass engagement of new army units. Also on the 8th of October, but in 1918, during World War I, Private First Class Acting Corporal Alvin Cullum York was one of a group of 17 soldiers assigned to infiltrate German lines and silence a machine gun position. 
After the American patrol had captured a large group of enemy soldiers, German small arms fire killed six Americans and wounded three. Several of the Americans returned fire, whilst others guarded the prisoners. York and other Americans attacked the machine gun position, killing several German soldiers. The German officer in charge of the machine gun had emptied his pistol while firing at York but failed to hit him. This officer then offered to surrender and York accepted. York and his men marched back to their unit's command post with more than 130 prisoners. Later, York was promoted to sergeant and awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. An investigation resulted in the upgrading of the award to the Medal of Honour. York's bravery made him a national hero and an international celebrity amongst allied nations. The 9th of October in 1986 saw the stage musical Phantom of the Opera premiering in London. It was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and starred Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman. It ran for a total of 13,629 performances. On the 10th of October 1854, social reformer Mary Carpenter opened the first girls' reformatory in the country in the Red Lodge in Park Row, Bristol. The building is still there and is a fine example of an Elizabethan house and was originally a lodge of the Great House, which once stood on the site of the present Colston Hall, where Queen Elizabeth I once stayed. The Red Lodge is often described as Bristol's hidden treasure and houses the Great Oak Room, one of the finest rooms in the West Country. The 11th of October, 1969, and three people were shot dead during street violence in the Loyalist Shankill area of Belfast. And the 12th of October, 1900, the first modern submarine is commissioned by the US Navy as the USS Holland, named for its designer, John Philip Holland. And lastly, on the 13th of October, 1887, Australian soprano Nellie Melba makes her operatic debut as Gilda in Rigoletto at Theatre Royal de la Monnaie in Brussels. Well, my friends, I fear that means it's the end of another episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And bearing in mind those letters were written over 100 years ago, it shows that the effects of war on people and families never changes. And as the mother of someone who's serving in our military at the moment, I could really relate to these letters and to what the parents and loved ones were thinking and saying. Today's show has been brought to life by the voice talents of Steve from BFYTW Podcast, Garrett and Frankie from the Ever Trending Story Podcast, Augie, and lastly, Mike Moore. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. 
So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.